Welcome to Talk Tennis, a podcast created specifically for you, the tennis fanatic. Join us each week as we work to elevate your game both on and off the court. We will deliver fresh episodes to keep you up to date with tennis trends and technologies, as well as exclusive interviews with industry experts, current and former pros, and so much more. Here's your host, Michelle. Welcome to Talk Tennis. Today, we are going to spotlight another organization doing great things and making a difference in the lives of children with the sport of tennis. We are talking about the Richard Poncho Gonzalez Foundation, which was founded by the Gonzalez family in 2013. Joining me for this chat are Dan Gonzalez, Poncho's son, and Greg Gonzalez, Poncho's nephew, who have both spent their lives around the sport and continue to inspire and enhance the lives of today's youth with this foundation they've created through physical fitness, academic pursuit, and character building all through the sport of tennis. So thank you guys so much for joining me. Welcome to our little podcast. How are you guys doing? Doing good. I'm enjoying your wanting to hear us, and hopefully we can get out to a lot of kids and a lot of parents and make them understand what the sport of tennis can do for them. Awesome. I wanted both of you guys to maybe just give us a couple sentence background on you, your relation to Poncho, and how you guys decided to create this organization. The foundation, actually, there was a uh, tennis academy in Washington, D.C., that we had lent my dad's name to. And uh, I think it was 2006 when it started. And we would go out every other year and do some clinics with them, some fundraising ideas. 2011, Washington, D.C., the Latin Community Association in Washington, D.C., who actually ran the academy, we were out there for a clinic with them. And um, it was really an interesting day because we started, we came in at one in the morning into Baltimore and we got into Washington, D.C. about three. We had a clinic at 9.30 to 11.30, a lunch at one o'clock, then a meeting with just some of the Latin community um, associates and stuff and a cocktail party at five. And then we actually found out we had a dinner at seven o'clock at the Mexican consulate in Washington, D.C., and that we were the VIPs. We just we didn't know. We had no idea. Um, And this dinner at the consulate, uh, I would say probably about one hundred and fifty people that were there and basically fundraising and giving out a lot of information of what the what we were doing. We had not yet done the foundation. So we really didn't have anything other than what the academy was doing and trying to work with the kids. Uh, Through the night, though, we had some things that went on. We had a presentation of an award given to us or my father. We also gave an award to a Latin player in Florida. And during that time, there were some things that came off in the speech that uh, were really just about Pancho and how he loved the kids, how he would do things with the kids. Uh, really spend time, give them a lot of extra, where I've seen him with very wealthy adults turn away and walk away from what they want. And his thoughts were a lot of that the kids needed him and that he needed the kids because he was a big kid himself. But by the time all this got done, Mm -hmm. uh, we had our little presentations and stuff. The next thing we knew, we were having several players in the tennis industry, let's say, and politicians that were at the dinner that had really asked us if we'd ever thought about doing something national and presenting it to the kids, um, giving them something of an education, using tennis as a vehicle was really great. It opened a lot of doors and we sat and thought about it for a while. We really didn't pursue it, but it started to pursue us. And the next thing we know, six months later, we're applying for our 501 and we're being told all of these things we're going to get in trouble with or we're going to have to redo. And everything went through so smooth. Within about seven months, we had our 501. We didn't have to rewrite anything. It's an international 501, so it's not just in America. And the next thing we know, we were just starting to go with it. I mean, it was really nothing that we had planned. It was more, I think it's planned for us and what we're doing. And we now are in basically three states uh, working with different programs. We have programs in uh, Southern California from anywhere from going up north 
to Santa Maria, going down to Indian Wells. We have programs in Phoenix. Uh, we've had a couple programs we've done here in Denver. And uh, the looking at the kids and what we've really been able to give them, uh, one of the things that we have right now, and it's really about the kids, and it's the fact that we can educate them and we can give them skills. We can make them responsible, accountable adults, hopefully. Character values, uh, moral values, the building of doing your best instead of having to win or be number one are a lot of the characteristics we talk about. That sounds amazing. (laughs) I want to rewind a little bit, though, for our listeners and anyone that maybe isn't familiar with who Poncho Gonzalez is. Even myself, I am a tennis player through and through played this sport for a long, long time. And we were talking about Poncho the other day, and I was trying to pinpoint the exact era that he played in. And I was off in my own knowledge of when he played. And he was a really big athlete and influence of the the tennis era before it became a professional organized sport. So maybe you can tell me a little bit of the background on Poncho. What kind of person was he? What kind of athlete was he? How did he learn the sport? Tell me all about him. Oh, boy, that's a big story. <laughs> um, you know, most don't know about Poncho, uh, and mostly because there's a, a lot of changes in the tennis world, especially as a professional level, where prior to 1967, there was amateur level tennis and all the grand slam tournaments were amateur at that time. So it was something, there was a separation between the pros. The pros were actually rebels that were mavericks out there leading, leaving the amateur rankings and basically going on their own to build something. As we all know, uh, it was basically a small tour of pros. I mean, if you can imagine today, uh, and the first tour was basically four players, but imagine today the top eight players in the world had to play each other every week. That was the pro tour. It was usually a round robin format mm-hmm. or different formats. Now, the USTA, which was then the USLTA at that time, had no bearing whatsoever on it, and they are our governing body in tennis today. And it's somewhat sad because they don't recognize prior to 1967 the feats of the pros that they have. They will talk about Laver and Rosewall, who were in the crossover of it. They will talk about Poncho, but he was 41 when the crossover. They never really say anything. Uh, He was actually number six in the world at the age of 41 in 1969, the second, third year of open tennis. So it tells you how good he really was. But his travels, and they have a thing called barnstorming, which they would go three days in one town, drive to another, three days in another. And it was almost like an exhibition tour rather than a pro tour, but it was their life. It was their livelihood. It was their passion. And these were really the pioneers of the game. And my dad never had a formal tennis lesson. He was self-taught. He basically... Uh, I remember talking to him of times that he looked at how animals move naturally. He watched other athletes in different sports, imitating that. So through all this time, he really never had any formal tennis lesson given to him. Uh, He was given a racket at the age of 12 and a half as a Christmas gift because his mom didn't want him playing football and, and the rougher sports. And he fell in love with the game as a passion. Within a year and a half, he was number one in his age group. And there were a lot of the, let's say, the bodies of tennis that didn't like that because, one, he was a person from the other side of the tracks. He was a Mexican-American, which at this time was not really a a good thing social justice-wise to be in that era. So there was a lot going against him, but he really loved this game and the passion of it. Uh, At times, his mom said he would sleep with his racket and stuff. (laughs) Uh, He strung it with kite string, whatever strings he had. So he really did the points of things of learning through experience rather than going out and having it all done for him. Uh, He was also, I would say, ostracized or blackballed from junior tennis. And they found many ways to do it. This way, they found out that uh, he was cutting school to practice. His justification was one of his nemesis, Jack Kramer, uh, 
was allowed to go to school early in the morning and then leave school early and practice, which he could never get that kind of deal. So there were a lot of things that were one person could do this, but he couldn't do it Again, so much of the just, but he never let that bother him. He kept doing it. Uh, he actually got put into a, a boy's school or what they would say prison for juvenile delinquencies uh, for a year and a half because of truancy, because of um, he had a little bit of problem when he wasn't playing tennis that he broke into some houses and found the excitement of certain things that kept that passion that he had. And it got him in trouble. But it also woke him up, I think, to a lot of what he was responsible, accountable for. Uh, from what I understand, his little stint in the juvenile hall was the next stint of going to adult prison or going to military. And he went into the military and he didn't like that either. So he was not. <laughs> he just wanted he, to play tennis. <laughs> he wanted. Yeah, that's basically all he wanted. But he got always in trouble for it. And uh, almost to the point where he was going to quit at the military and his came back out six months later, his, his buddies and friends talked him back to playing. And within another year and a half, he's number one in the world again at the amateur rankings. Now, this is when they were amateurs and he had won the U.S. Open. So a lot of this came about by just his own determination and what he really had as his wanting in his life and that was to play tennis i asked him one time with all of the new players and this was this would be about in the early 80s if he ever felt he missed something and he said he never did he said he was the best in the world at the time he was he said his real want was to be the best at what he loved and that's what he really went towards his working with kids he's just always loved kids he's been a big kid himself and as when things went through that 60s and 70s, I think a lot of it got lost into what he did. He was number one in the world for mm -hmm. 10 years. Nobody else will do that. He had eight years in a row winning the U.S. Pro Championships to the point where it was a trophy that you got for a year like the Stanley Cup or you get – he won it so many years in a row. His name was on there. There were only three other names on it. They gave him the trophy. <laughs> they tried to change rules on him in the pro. They tried to make him serve three feet behind the baseline. They tried to make what was called a two bounce rule. You had to hit two ground strokes before you went to the net. He adapted to everything they made him do. And again, he once told me, he says, you know, you may not like the things you have to do. You can change them, but change them in the proper manner or accept them. And he accepted everything they tried to mm -hmm. do to him. He dominated so much that I know Jack Kramer had some fits because a lot of the players just didn't want to play him anymore. He was playing all of the Wimbledon champions, all the U.S. champions that changed from the amateur rankings to the pro, and he was beating all of them. Now, they won't say any of that. They don't have USTA will not talk about a lot of that because it's prior to when their involvement possibly was in. But they are the history of our game, and they should know, you know one of the greatest American champions was Richard Poncho Gonzalez. He also broke the color barrier, which they keep saying Arthur broke it or Althea broke it. And uh, the African-American, I understand, but Richard Poncho Gonzalez broke in as a Mexican-American, which they didn't want. And he really broke the barrier for others. Arthur talks about it a lot of times in, in comments that he makes that how Poncho set the way for them. And I think that whether they give him due credit for his abilities in what he did, they should at least give him due credit for his breaking that barrier and not letting anybody stop him from doing it. And as we know today, we have a lot of problems with this still. So it's not something that was just then. And I think his story resonates really a lot more of this. Uh, his goals and dreams were not based on, well, I want to make money or I want to be number one in the world. His goals and dreams were based on his passion, his love for something and his love for kids uh, I mean, that's just I've seen him do stuff with that where he actually had a and I believe it was a doctor who offered him one hundred thousand dollars for a lesson a week for a year. 
And he basically looked at him and said, well, no, I don't really have the time. And then you'd watch him walk off and he'd play two hours of free tennis with the kids and stay with them. <laughs> so there was where he was. He wasn't really persuaded by the money or anything. Uh, a funny story would be one of another doctor that was a specialist that wanted a lesson. And my dad basically had known who he was and asked him about, you know, you are one of the best in your field and you go out and command a lot. What do you usually get? And the doctor said about 200,000 an operation. And uh, my dad basically said, well, and you're only one of the best. So I'm the best. So what do you think I'm going to charge you? <laughs> now, now, that's what that's what he thought about some of the people though in that in those positions that it really didn't matter to him. It was about him. Now, a lot of them really didn't like him. A lot of sports writers didn't like him. So they tried to play up the bad boy side, all of the other things. And uh, he really, he was just a person trying to walk through life and do something that he loved. And as he did it, he really not, let nothing block his path. And that, that did block his path. He told me one time, there are no problems on the court, only answers. The problem is trying to find the answer. <laughs> Now, he looked at life that way, find an answer to all the problems. So, and I don't understand a lot of the tennis world because they see all of this that is a history. They go through the 60s of some great American players who came up. They talk about those players as amateurs, and they don't realize that the Pancho Gonzalez's of the world, even the Jack Kramers, the Tony Traberts, those guys made professional tennis what it is today. Laver, Rosewall, mm -hmm. they got the tail end of it and were able to to benefit from it, where some of these other players really don't get any of the credit for what they did. And uh, whether he has all these records or not, uh, it's hard to really understand why won't they talk about him more? Why won't they bring him out? In 2005, I believe, Tennis Magazine had an article of the best strokes in the world and he was the best server that mm -hmm. they voted. Now, if they voted for that in 2005, again, how good was he in the 60s and 50s? And if you're going to give him credit for this, why not give him credit for a lot more that he had done? So I think there's really just a, a, a still bad boy image they have of him. They don't want to give him that benefit of what he really did and how he made this game. Uh, Ian Terriak had a quote and I don't know if you know who Ian was, but he played for Romania. He now has the, the Romanian Davis Cup team, very big tennis thing. And he basically made a quote, Poncho was the beginning of professional tennis as we know it. He was the father of everything we have today. And these are from players. These are quotes from players. Bud Collins, who was really what they would probably think of as the biggest historian in tennis, uh, one of his comments, mm -hmm. for a decade, Gonzalez and pro tennis were synonymous. A promoter couldn't hope to rally crowds unless Poncho was on the bill. The other names, Trabert, Rosewall, Newcomb, Laver, Hold, meant nothing to them. So here's a historian talking about that all of these names meant nothing. And this was after Poncho again was supposedly too old over the hill. Bud Collins also makes another statement in the Wall Street Journal where he's asked, and this was right before his death, of all the players he's seen through the years, you know, who would he really like to be on the court with? Mm -hmm. And his first first thought was, well, there's no doubt I'd like to be with Federer. He <laughs> says, but if I had one man in the world to put my life on in a match, Pancho Gonzalez would be the man. So, you know, why would these people say these things, but the sports writers just write all kinds of other stuff about them? So it's things, and that's part of what we try to tell the kids, that his goals and wants and passions brought him over the adversity. It wasn't easy, mm -hmm. but he did it. And we should be telling these kids about it. We should be, we should be really getting these kids excited about that life can be this way. I feel my dad is a true American success story as a child of first immigrants across that border and being able to have the desire that he had and have a country which he had the freedom to do it in, even though he fought a lot.
Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with me, because like I said, I did my research and wasn't coming up with a ton of stuff, but maybe that is a big reason why. So I'm really excited to be able to share all of this with our listeners and hopefully continue to spread this story because he sounds like an amazing man. And from what I did learn about him, he seemed very gregarious, very, you know, he kind of had... We were talking, Greg and I were talking before, he seemed like he was really good at anything he wanted to accomplish. Um, I also read that he got his GED at 57, which I think is super important. He believes in education. Yeah. Um, A a story I have, my one of my crossroads was leaving tennis in my early 30s, and we were at Caesars Palace. And uh, it's a Sunday afternoon. The tournament had just finished and we're cleaning up after the tournament. And he sits me down on center court, says, I understand this is your last tournament you're going to be doing. I said, yeah. He says, well, what are your plans? I said, dad, I really don't have any plans. I've just been doing this for 18 years. I'm tired. Mm -hmm. I want to go out and do Mm -hmm. some other things. And he basically looked me right in the eyes. He said, I'm just going to give you one piece of advice. He says, you guys, I've told you all your life, I didn't care if you were garbage collectors, tennis players, doctors or lawyers, do the best you can. Be the best at what you want. He said, you're going out doing something. He says, I am 55 years old today. I was the best in the world at what I did. I may have been the best ever. I'm still learning things I can do in this game. Mm -hmm. Never stop learning. No matter what you go out and do, learn every day. We need to. And again, it's something that it stuck in my mind that if a man who achieved the ability he did, number one out of millions and millions of people, hearing him say he's still learning about his craft makes you really wonder. Now, we also have been fortunate and Greg and I, my brothers, we realize we've been blessed because we've been around a lot of world champions, not just in tennis, but golfers boxers out at Caesars Palace, to, to meet a Muhammad Ali, a Sugar Ray Leonard, to know an Arnold Palmer or a Lee Trevino, Jack Nicklaus, and to also know that all of these guys basically had passion, that what drove them was not wanting to be number one. And to see those real comparisons of the different sports have that same type of attitude towards what they're doing, to know they're always learning. And that they would tell you that, too, that never stop learning. His GED was just another way of saying, I can show you, I can still learn. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it really shows something to the kids that, you know, you may want to drop out of school. Poncho was somewhat of a dropout and forced in many ways, but he still achieved what he wanted to do. And he did it in a way that was not easy. So uh, I think some of that helps also understand his character and what he was like. For sure. Now, how was it growing up with him? I mean, you guys, (laughs) that's a lot to live up to. (laughs) Like, hey, no pressure. (laughs) It's a lot to live up to, but it's also, you know, there was, we were talking about the outline and stuff and uh, we were (laughs) thinking about something funny that my dad did. He was not a funny man. <laughs> okay. He was a lot of fun. He really was exciting, loved to do things. But if you really saw him, he always had a purpose in what he was doing. Mm. He was not really a practical joker or anything. He always had a direction. And that's what was tough because you didn't know how to read him. He <laughs> was going, he was the leader. As kids, I mean, there were times we didn't want to come home because if he was in town, We had to work. He believed in hard labor. He called us once, my brothers and I, that we were no longer tennis players. We're physical laborers. We work hard on the, on, at our craft and remember that most don't understand that too, what it takes to be really an athlete at that level. So that comes out to really telling these kids and we've been there a lot of what I call certified instructors have never been there. They don't really know firsthand what it's like. My dad was tough. To a point, he could be mean. <laughs> there were there were things, but we only saw him maybe one or two months out of the year, too. So we never got to see him a lot. The pro tour again was different than than today. Today they can go out, play four tournaments, take a couple weeks off, play. Mm-hmm. They had no breaks. There had been, I think, one time, and this would have probably been in the mid fifties, 
that I think in 16 months he was basically home maybe three or four times. So it wasn't something that we really had a lot also of being a father like most families have. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember my marriage, I had to make him my best man because he was in Europe at the time and I knew he wouldn't come if I didn't have something special for him. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, and he flew in that morning of my marriage from London. Wow. Uh, and then flew out the next day. So it, it's stuffed at how he is and knowing. And when, he's, when you're around him, you are usually walking behind him because he's just taking you somewhere and it's almost like be on your toes. <laughs> we, we had basically two words we thought that when he died that we would try to put on. One was anticipation. He was always trying to tell us, learn to anticipate the situation. Now, racing cars, playing tennis, doing any of the things we did, we had to always know what he was thinking. Now, that's not easy with a man who thinks the way he thought. So I think a lot of that also shows the character and, and what his type was and where he was. Yeah, um, I'm loving these stories. <laughs> <He's> so, <laughs> I wish I, I wish he were still around so I would have a chance to chat with him just because I uh, very much understand that kind of hard hard work and you know you just keep pushing and make it work. Well, he has a quote in the International Hall of Fame. And it really basically tells the kids, let's see if I can, I thought I had that one in here. Basically, he tells the kids that life is not easy, that there are going to be lots of ups and downs. There are going to be a lot of walls you face, that you must face these walls. You must not be afraid of them. And that the learning of education is important to educate yourself, to not give up but to persevere, mm -hmm. that eventually all hard work, all sacrifices will pay off. So it's a believing in that, that even when you're not getting or seeing a result come back, don't stop. Yeah. You have a goal. Finish that goal. Don't stop in the middle of it. I work with high school kids. I coach high school tennis, and we just started. We're lucky. It's one of the sports that got approved to play oh, right now. Well, we just started this week. We have our first nice. match actually today. That's how quick everything nice. goes. But trying to tell the kids sometimes some of these things and the fact that because we may face defeat, but it's not defeat. We're going to learn from it. We're going to. He was a believer in all of this, that there was nothing you could not accomplish if you put your mind to it. And a lot of it was just that being in there and growing up, having that around you, you didn't think anything different. We sort of thought our life was more be like everybody else's. Actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but this, uh, it, it, to a certain point, there was a genius in him. And the genius was really hard to understand because probably, as most of us know, some geniuses are a little weird. <laughs> and he had a weirdness about him, but it was uh, he could be a lot of fun. He was exciting. He was very key to this is what we're doing. This is he didn't waste time. He could run off of three or four hours of sleep. He did not. Uh, and that's what was really trouble, because sometimes we get phone calls at one in the morning. We had residences in California, Nevada, and we race cars, which Gregory had told you about that. He would call us from Nevada, come in maybe real quick, tell us to drive apart down from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, <laughs> and then we'd be at the races in the morning. Now. Some people may say, well, why would you do that? Well, that's because my dad asked. That's what we're <laughs> supposed to do. We never thought any different about it. We just thought that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. So uh, I have a tendency, my brother, my older brother, Richard, told me I'm pretty much like him. I run around like that. And I have that tendency. Gregory gets all excited and passionate. So maybe <laughs> it's something in our family or was it that this gentleman here really took our lives and directed it to a lot of this? That's awesome. I love that. I can resonate with that. That's kind of my personality too. I very much go to the thing that I'm most passionate about and it's the all consuming. It's very, uh, that's all I want to do. And it's a hundred percent passion. And sometimes it's tough through the times where you feel like maybe no one else understands you. It, that can be frustrating, but when you lean into it, you kind of realize that that's where that your path is taking you and to just keep 
keep pushing forward, even if everyone else thinks you're psychotic. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think a lot of it is really believing in yourself. And mm-hmm. today we just don't do that. The kids, uh, I'm surprised some of them don't have that kind of imagination to really believe. Uh, they all are looking for much more support where Poncho was, no, I am who I am. And can I do this? And, and that support believing in yourself carries you over a lot of bumps and today it's easier for these young kids to face a wall and turn away and say okay i'll just leave that and go to something else because there's Mm -hmm. so many choices they can do to have to tell some of these kids when they get to a certain point that they may be multi-sports players sooner or later you're going to have to pick one Mm -hmm. if you're going to go to the next levels because it's going to ask that for you it's hard for kids to sacrifice today and take what might be a pain emotionally because you're sacrificing something, but you're doing it for what you love, hopefully, too. Yeah. And that, that's part of the believing in it. Too many kids want things, but they don't love it. They just want it because they think they're supposed to have it. So we've created a society that uh, I was in sales for a while, and we used to do what we called concept sales. We'd sell you a concept, not a product. Mm -hmm. And today we've been sold a lot of concepts, and a lot of these kids think they're the answers, where the answer is really not that. The answer is you and who you are, and do you know that? And trying to get that out of them, make them understand that, make them understand that losing is winning if you learn from it. Right. And a lot of these are the, of how to present it to us. And uh, I just feel like our life was we were really blessed to be around somebody who had such a positive attitude, even to the point sometimes. And this is how difficult he could be. He could really tell you that day is night and he would really try to convince you of it somehow, <laughs> some way. And for some reason, you go out scratching your head, go, you know, he may be right. <laughs> But that was him. That was just being around him. And there were so many good things that came really out of him that, again, nobody really wants to hear Uh, his even his antics on the court, which it's funny because you look at the top 10, they give all these top 10 lists now and they talk Mm -hmm. about top 10 attitudes and and things on the court. And he was one that they always wrote about how he was angered at this, angered at that. But whenever he let his temper go, one, and again, Bud Collins makes a comment, he was better when he was mad. And the players got to point, don't make him upset. But his thing was, is that when he got upset, he was more determined now to prove a point. Mm -hmm. And when he got upset, it was usually over something that he really felt he was wronged. It had nothing to do with the crowd or like maybe a Connor's antic, a mackerel antic, Kyrgios antic. <laughs> His angers would be more of that. Do you know what you're doing? Even to the point I've seen him when he got called a footfall, which he did not move his foot, believe me. And he looked at the umpire and said, explain the rule to me. And he made the umpire and the umpire didn't know the rule specifically how it read and he had to explain the rule to the umpire so i mean these were the type of things his anger and temperament was about but his temperament also could just go off any quick snap if it was the wrong thing he thought but he used it more than let it abuse him Mm -hmm. he was just now okay now i'm more determined to focus on what i'm doing just to show prove a point (laughs) so and, and those were the things that through all you see it never changed even when he was dying, I thought he was going to lick cancer because he had that kind of mentality. Determination. <laughs> I think he even thought it. So, you know, and there was a point where it was in rem- remission and there was a lot of positives. But it's something that, you know, we all have something we can't beat once in a while. And that was it. But I even think to that point, and I remember seeing him three months uh, prior when the cancer was in remission, that he had this more positive. He's out playing golf you know, with senior golf players on the circuit and stuff. He was just the same man at at that point that he Mm -hmm. was when he was younger too. That's crazy. Well, let's go full circle with this. So tell me about the kinds of kids that are involved with the foundation and how you guys continue to help them and teach this story of Poncho and fuel their confidence and their passion and 
Tell me all about the kids and the foundation. I'm going to let my executive director <laughs> handle that one. Okay. I mean, I love the kids. I'm one of them too. I'm like my dad. So that's really my answer. And I want to see them become accountable, responsible adults. We need more of that mm -hmm. than we need intellect geniuses in this world. So that's my view. But I think Gregory can go more about what the foundation and really what we're doing in there. I guess I, I want to say one of the drivers through all this, and this goes back to my father, is my uncle's story. We really feel like it's an important story. The fact that he taught himself to play and then become the best in the world for 10 years mm -hmm. is a story that my dad always felt could be shared with any child or anybody that's in a tough circumstance. So that's one of the overdriving ideas or things that, that drive us. Uh, so we've gone out to Southern California quite a bit and done some clinics out there. I teach here in Phoenix, Arizona at an organization called Neighborhood Ministries. Okay. And uh, so we teach downtown and urban Phoenix. And it's, it's really, I guess, most of the kids you might say are in some tough circumstances. And so we go downtown, we pick them up, we take them to the park, and we we take them through their programming and everything. And, and I guess the main thing more than anything for us and my friend, I have a friend of mine named Mike Millison. He volunteers is that we've developed a lot of good relationships with the kids. So like I just went down a week or two ago and saw the kids and it was so great to see them again with everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is, is going down there and spending time with them and being their friends and showing them that you care about them and that you show up every week. And, and, and it's a relationship thing that's grown over the last five or six years. So we've become very good friends. Now, within that, we, we teach them tennis. We teach them the fundamentals of tennis. We get them out there and we give them activity on the tennis court, which we feel is really important. You know, when I go downtown to see the kids, there's not a lot of activity for them. Yeah. So we really want to get them out there on the court. And now with the virus and everything going on, we feel like we want to get them involved in other things with automobiles, anything. You know, my uncle was a person of activity. So, you know, he kept us active. And when we look back on it, all the opportunities of things that we had to do, we can see how beneficial they are at this part in our lives. Part of that is just physical activity. Dan and I are fortunate at our age that, we're in pretty good shape for our ages, you know, due to the fact that we've been able to play and be active all of these years. And even when we take out the little ones. So in Phoenix, I work with preschoolers. I work with uh, grammar school kids. And then we work with older kids up to the age of about 15 or 16. But even some of the little hand-eye coordination activities that we give the little ones or even the older kids, we've, we see all that beneficial. So. You know, through the years, we've been working with a lot of kids. I have made it a purpose for myself in the last two or three years to really go downtown and get to know the kids hmm. so that we really understand where they're at and what they need and how we can potentially reach them. And so, and then during all this time too, we're continuing to see the importance of the story and what potentially we can, you know, provide the kids. And so... Uh, that's that's part of what's going on. We're looking to expand. So we, Dan and I, when we first started, had the opportunity to start out, and we we're going to start in in Denver and just Phoenix. Okay. But we found that the story can affect so many kids that we want to take it on to a broader basis. So with the digital materials that people are developing now, we're working on that. We're working with a guy from Hollywood that's going to shoot my cousin Richard and a couple of people and do some instructional tapes in about two weeks. So we're developing those materials for the kids. And then honestly, really right now, everybody's just in a holding pattern. So we're waiting to see what's going to happen with the kids. But uh, it's been fun. And we have a, more than anything, I think, for myself personally and, the, and what we have down here, it's been the relationships with the kids, <laughs> which is good and bad because you start to get attached to them and you, you know. Yeah. 
Which I'm curious, do you have any stories of seeing a kid from quite young really do well at tennis or even just go off to college and do well in life? Or I'm sure you guys are still a pretty new foundation. Uh, one gal I, I worked with, she's, you know, about half of them have a lot of natural talent. Mm-hmm. She has a, a lot of natural talent and she played on her high school tennis team. She's a senior now. Okay. But this season got canceled, but she was number two nice. on her team, which was good, you know? Yeah. And uh, she could be a lot better. I think, you know, she could play at a college if she would really train for a year or two. Mm-hmm. You know, I've talked to her a little bit about that. You know, unfortunately, a lot of these kids, their parents are from Mexico or their grandparents are from Mexico and they don't understand quite yet the importance of education when they're younger. The organization that we work with is really emphasizing education as the the key or goal for the kids to get out of their circumstances. Uh, We had one high school player that was helping us, and he played number one on the same team on the boys' side. And he just got an educational scholarship to the college here in town, Grand Canyon. So that was a big, you know, that was a neat thing to see. So those are a couple of success stories. We really feel that if these kids would train for a year or two, some of them, they would really have an opportunity to play college. I think we could help them enough. I, I, you know, they don't, they have to understand it takes, it takes a lot of time and, and so forth. So we're working to get to where we can train with them on a more regular basis at the facility. And do you feel like if these kids didn't find tennis in your organization that their lives might not be going in the right direction? My feeling is that a lot of the kids we deal with, some of them are single parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them, their dads are in jail. They're this and that. Uh, They have a lot of social problems that uh, not as much, again, thinking of the game of tennis, but using it as the vehicle. A lot of what the foundation is putting together and we're finishing up right now with some of the curriculums, uh, putting a basic nutritional program together, which I'm just finishing up with a nutritionist right now on basics and back to basics of foods and stuff. Uh, Educational programs with the fact that physics of tennis, the science of tennis, geometry of the court, Mm -hmm. uh, I basically was a math major. And when I had geometry in high school, I didn't understand geometry, but I understand the tennis court and it made me understand geometry. So the correlation of a lot of that in our classes and what we teach, we try to correlate with that with them so that they can associate it, not just with tennis, but with other things they have. And I think a lot of the programs we're doing after school programs, which may be tennis clinics, but part of it might be a classroom also. In Cal State LA, we were just finishing up a building there with my dad and Rosie Cassell's name on it that is going to have classrooms on the second story for us. And it's going to be part of the tennis and soccer facility that they're building and rebuilt there. And the educational components now, the tennis becomes, again, the vehicle. The kids like the tennis, but they may not love it to go on. But if they have something that can open doors for them, then it's just as important for us to realize that. Mm -hmm. But to actually help them and educate them now and have programs that can make them see that it's not just tennis that this is everyday life and that our health, our wellness, there's so many more things to it. Uh, I have one junior who works with us in LA. I'd been worked with in the nineties and it's funny. We still work with him. I talk with him and he had ADD. He had a lot of problems in high school. We found out was not a great student, but his background of traveling on tour he had been on a junior tour in europe he'd been back east with a lot of the junior tournaments i had been with him that that was his education and he ended up getting a scholarship at leolo mountain university in los angeles and a part of it was looking at what his actual life was and did he have life skills and he had better life skills the interviewer said than most of those who had these high grades and degrees so it's really something to again to try to correlate to the kids that education is not just about getting a's 
It's about experiencing things and learning from them and finding out. And I think that's a little bit more we can extend on that we're doing with the foundation and where our vision goes to. I would like to see us really retain kids from like a three to five year and see that we can really make a difference in their lives and have that feeling of knowing that you're going off much stronger, whether it be emotionally, mentally, both physically, you're going to go off with something more positive that we can give you. Definitely. Yeah. You guys are definitely helping these kids find the tools that they need to be successful in any area of life that they decide to pursue. It sounds like. So I love hearing about that. Um, If anyone's listening, how can they get involved or learn more about your foundation? They could go to our ponchofoundation.org where they can email info at ponchofoundation.org also, and we will respond to those inquiries. So uh, there is a PayPal account set up on our foundation if they would like to help us. We, uh, you know, the kids, there's a tremendous need out there for the kids, I'll say. And maybe even right now, more so than any, to possibly be shown that they're loved. I think there's a little bit of confusion on top of the very difficult circumstances that they're going through in life as is on top of it. Now they've got all these other things that are going on. So, you know, they're our future. And, you know, what we've come to find out too, with all this, our experiences and and everything is we really want to help the kids have fun. You know, that's part of what we want to do with the automobiles and, and some of the other games. We take ping pong tables down to the facility down there, uh, slot car sets, which is a little race. race yeah, I was going to say, maybe you can tell us a little bit. We, we talked before we started recording about the race car situation, but I know, especially with COVID and everything, sounds like, and talk about how that relates back to Poncho as well. Like that was uh, something else that he did. So let's go a little bit into the the race car and the track and all that, and how I can see you at the racetrack. <laughs> oh, there's Gregory. He's smiling yeah, now. Yeah, he's like, oh, now Gre- we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wild story, but, uh, you know, I think I think you could probably argue that my uncle always probably would love speed and excitement and those kind of things. That was his personality. And uh, when he was kept off the tour, you know, he was kept off the tour for a couple of years and he, he used to go and play poker sometimes. And uh, he won a 34 Ford, which is a very popular car. And he was a good hearted guy. He gave that to my father. Wow. My father was 15 years old. He said he was only one of two kids that had a car in high school. But anyways, at that time, you know, understanding tennis and and hot rodding in Southern California, you know, that was a place to be. Mm -hmm. And so my dad started getting a little bit involved in the hot rodding, and then my uncle got involved along with him. And and it just became now another passion for him that he had for the rest of his life. And so eventually, you know, he was breaking records. He was, you know really heavily involved in it, especially some, some of those years when he couldn't travel and play tennis. And eventually they ended up putting one of my uncle's cars into a dragster and they ran at the U S nationals in 1958. I think my dad told me that they qualified second. And, uh, so it turns out now in the hot rodding community, they're rebuilding and restoring a lot of the old hot rods and dragsters from the fifties and sixties. And it's just naturally evolved now that we're going to have the car redone. And that's going to be something that we're going to use to excite the kids, teach them about physics, teach them mechanics. I took a group of kids down to the races in February and they had just such a wonderful time. So that was just, you know, again, another sign that this was a positive direction that we were going for the kids. So this car should be done around next, the spring of next year. And we're going to probably utilize it for a tool. We'll, we will interview the builders so the builders can explain to the kids about this project and and what what their approach was to building the car. And then we'll also use the car to help uh, teach the kids. And hopefully they can work on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. That's really cool. And it's cool that like all of these things kind of naturally are falling into place for you guys. And they, they really are. The the thing with the racing and with Gregory taking them to the races and talking to the kids 
uh, I think there's a lot more avenues with the automotive industry going out. And we've had some of the mechanics and people that we know in racing that are willing to give workshops to the kids. Uh, one of the things I think that we lack today are what we call trade schools in the 60s and 70s, and we no longer have a lot of them. And automotive industry is a big industry, mm -hmm. and we have not just the boy anymore. Right. We have a lot of girls who are fascinated with cars and automotive. So it's another outlet that it was uh, the probably second love of my dad, where he said if he wasn't a tennis player, he'd probably been a race car driver or builder. And he had, again, a very genius about the mechanics and engineering of stuff. So a lot of this we can take also to the table to these kids, giving them an outlet there. And a lot of what is in the automotive Motive industry today is not like it was 60 years ago. There's a lot more IT work. There's a lot more things that expands out to areas that they could go into as a lifestyle or a career. So again, it's another avenue and it has, it's just sort of fallen in and this car has given them excitement. Uh, Gregory, I don't know if he told you about the other project on another car where we have, and it's actually, we're trying to duplicate the original panel wagon that my dad and Vic Satius and Kramer and them actually drove across the tour on. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah. See, so, well, that's going to that's going to pull the race car. Nice. See, so we're going to have these two things that really one will be them seeing that in 1953 this is how they traveled in America in a panel wagon with portable nets and their equipment, and everybody had a caravan. So it tells also a lot again the pioneering tour of it, and duplicating this uh you know it's just something that the kids we feel really is going to excite them get them involved uh the questions they ask will be much more i think open because they'll see all of this and it sort of tends to lead in there and the automotive industry the racing which as you could probably tell is gregory's love where <laughs> mine is mine pretty much i found out was tennis that i had a passion for it so we have a good balance right now <laughs> That's, that's amazing. And you guys are teaching passion. Like that's the takeaway for me. Well, we're building up our passion. It carries you through so much. You know, interesting though, to think about is that Poncho was a pioneer in tennis. He really helped build that sport. And then he was a pioneer in drag racing. You know, we have some of the best in the industry working with us and Poncho raced against the top names at the time, you know, so it all ties in. We want to take the car and pull the car around and go to, you know, maybe some farm worker cities and pull it into a town there for those kids and maybe some Indian reservations. So that's one of our desires and stuff. So we're really looking forward to, to next year and yeah. doing that. <laughs> he's like all excited. He's got yeah. it all going. <laughs> he, he, he's got everything he wants. Yeah. <laughs> you can see the wheels turning. He's like going through the schedule. <laughs> well, he's already looking ahead. He sees it already done right now. So. Well, it's all coming together, you know, and they keep sending me pictures. It's hard not to be excited about it. No, that's really cool. I love it. And love you know it. what Danny said when I when I took the kids to the races, the girls were really the ones that were most excited. <laughs> yes, girl power. <laughs> yes, that, uh, I did a lot with the tennis, with the girls in tennis, too. So it's something that, you know, it's such a, a valuable piece for both boys and girls. And I think it really comes together for us to really be able to take Poncho and say, this is what to be. And Gregory didn't mention it. The dragster was a world record holder in its class. So he wasn't just good at this. He was good at this. And the family, Greg's dad, involved with the racing much more than probably the tennis. That was one of his loves. They accomplished top levels in another sport. He was a, a scratch, a par golfer, which just went out. He, he bowled at 220, 230. <laughs> um, he played billiards, which is pool to some. And he actually did an exhibition with the world women's world billiards champion and he beat her in an exhibition. So he just had this knack of everything he did was very natural to him. Um, another quote, and it's funny because you look at the players and they talk about it and the sports writers for some reason have different things. 
But Tony Trabert, who was what they called the great American white hope that was going to dethrone Pancho Gonzalez when he turned pro, Tony makes a quote, Gonzalez is the greatest natural athlete tennis has ever seen. See, so, and this may be why he never had to take a formal tennis lesson. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there was just this about him that he could do, and this was the genius in him. He could actually break down and analyze something so almost perfected to it. And if it wasn't, he was built on perfected, 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 that really pushed, pushed, pushed to the finer detail points of stuff. Uh, and that helps, I think, also understand the things that every whatever he went into, he seemed to accomplish. You know, yeah. there were other things he didn't like and he didn't accomplish them, too. So like <laughs> I think the rest of us, it's the things we love. We put that extra effort to. Totally. And I think there's something to be said there is if whatever you're working on in life is not something you're passionate about, maybe keep pursuing things until yes. you find that thing. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Well, do we have any other stories we want to share? I feel like this has been very educational. <laughs> well, what you're hearing here is some stuff that has never really been brought out. And as a family, I get asked a lot of times, and I try to tell them, we were very private. My dad was mm-hmm. a very private person. He didn't like people nosing in on him. He didn't like, uh, he would even say that when they interviewed him, they interviewed him to find the bad in him. They didn't interview him to find about the man and who he was. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because there are things that we brought out because of the foundation that we feel to adjust more social justice type feeling that he was wronged in many ways, but it was never really used as an excuse. So mm-hmm. we really never, and you're hearing some things that may not be the first time it's been put out, but it's the first time it's been put out to a public type thing. The writing of scripts, we've had several scripts given to us. Some of them, I still have one that I laugh at because it has <laughs> stories in it that you wonder. But other than that, we're doing our own thing. And we have our story that we now are telling. Yeah. And that is where hopefully now is the right time to do it, too. We feel the timing is better now. And the story, his story is not about tennis. It's about a true American hero who really stood up for a lot of right and didn't let anything keep him down. And in America, if we do it right, we can accomplish whatever we want. And I think that's the real story that needs to be told in a movie, not about his tennis, but about the character, about being a child who didn't have all of the things open to him. Mm -hmm. So he had to open his own doors about being the world champion and being ostracized out of a restaurant because he's a Mexican-American in this country to have these things done to him and still realize he did what he did is the real story. Yeah, I'm glad you guys are sharing the authentic side of his story. And even today in 2020, I'm sure many of it is relatable and relevant to many children, kids, families, individuals all over the world right now. Seems more so today. Which is crazy. So thank you for sharing the authentic side. Did Dan mention a little bit about my grandfather? You you had mentioned about the story being similar to a lot of the kids today. My grandfather walked 500 miles when he was 10 years old to get to this country. So it's very common to what's going on today. Uh, Our family's from South Central Los Angeles, which was a mixed neighborhood, partially at that time, uh, African-American, Mexican-American, Italian, just mixed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was inspired by a a black person that shot uh, marbles with his feet. And his name was Armless Willie. And Pancho was the marbles champion of Los Angeles when he was a kid. Of course he was. (laughs) What's that? I said, of course he was. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a guy named Armless Willie that gave exhibitions with his uh, toes because he didn't have any arms. But he had a wonderful attitude. And Uncle Richard would go see him play. And that really had a great impact on him because he could, what he could do with his skills and his toes, but also just his wonderful jovial attitude, you know, given the fact that he didn't have any arms. So that had a big impact on him. And it's unfortunate he was with his buddy on the way to go see an exhibition. And that's when he got hit by a car on a scooter. And that's when he got the big scar on his face. So he had a big scar that went across his cheek there. 
And uh, a lot of people used to write that that was given to them by a knife fight. So unfortunately, you know, there was a national radio show that they did where they, they did that story about him supposedly getting that scar from a knife fight and stuff. So that was something that he fought off. And then I don't know if Dan mentioned he almost was hung in Texas one time when they were traveling on the tour. Uh, they went to get something to eat and they wouldn't serve my uncle and he got a little bit upset. And uh, they had a group of guys out there with a noose and some African-American guy told him, hey, you better get out of Dodge quick. Was my uncle and Segura, my uncle Manuel, and they were on their way to Louisiana. And so he had some of those unfortunate experiences. But uh, so there were some things that he went through that we feel is at this time is, is important to, for maybe more people to know, especially the kids. For sure. And as we know, things bad things are still happening. And Yes. And, <laughs> and it's sad. Yeah, it's, it's it is. It's sad that it is. And it's nice to know that these kids have someone to look up to who persevered. And like, yeah. you, like what I love that you continue to keep saying is that he didn't drop to that level. He rose above and, you know, no matter how poorly he was treated or rules that didn't apply to him, he still played by his own rules and did things in a moral way. I think, you know, he believed too that, you know, just working hard and he was a straightforward guy. You know, I mean, you knew what he was about. He was hardworking. You know, I think he gets somewhat of a bad rap, maybe his personality a lot that's been written really isn't as accurate as, you know, they want to portray him. I, I think people need to understand too, he was the best in the world at tennis. So he had some demands on that. And then as a race car driver at that level, so he was competing at two sports. Mm. So, you know, I think he really in his heart wanted to help whoever he could if he had the time. Well, that's where you guys come in, I think. It's kind of his legacy that you're living out. Uh, I think it is. I think we're really a continuation. And I think Gregory and I are feeling that more and more. Mm -hmm. That I look at my life and what's happened. And I remember something Connors had made a comment when he first, the first time he actually played my dad in a tournament, I think he was 17. And he was in the finals at the Pacific Southwest at that time, which was the first, second year of the open tournaments again, I think. And Connor's making a statement that his life basically was very young, but here he was with the best in the world at a game he loved. And how could he win or lose, feel bad about it, that here he got that experience. Uh, my feeling, and with this foundation and stuff we've been doing these past couple years, is that our time is now as a continuation of some of this and that how fortunate we have been as a family to be around a man like this and the things that he did and how he did them and how I can't complain about anything, even though it was tough. I, it made me a better person and it be a leader with these kids and be able to talk to them. Honestly, uh, I have a lot of times the kids can't talk to their parents. It's, it's amazing how many high school kids cannot really go to their parents and talk directly about certain things mm -hmm. where they have enough trust in myself and knowing that what my values and what we've done and what the foundation does, that they have that trust in that and that we can, can get that to them. Because that's another issue a lot of these kids have is trust, and they just don't seem to trust the things that they're around. And I think that we can be that positive for them. I think maybe we're somewhat like Connor said, we're, we're a bit in a win-win situation. We can't really lose. So, and we're excited about going forward. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those, those stories. And I mean, I feel like I was just educated. I was like taking notes <laughs> and I'm really excited that what you guys are doing and you're continuing to grow and you're leading with passion and heart and you're providing so many kids an opportunity to flourish in more ways than one. So such a cool story. And Michelle, I want to thank you too. We, you know, when I went downtown uh, last week, it was to take down all the wonderful tennis shoes and clothes and everything that the tennis warehouse donated to us. Cool. Yes. Yeah, it's so well appreciated. We want to say thank you so much. And the kids say thank you too. Of course, we love partnering with you guys. This is a great relationship and we love any way that we can help spread the passion and love for the sport, we will. When I took that stuff down, we found out one of the older kids, it was just spent a little bit of time with us, overdosed and <sighs> he died and uh, oh, that was kind of tough. So 
that that again is another thing that you know is another sign for Dan and I of how important this is, you know. And uh, it's hard because we know the younger brothers and sisters. A hundred percent. And uh, to know that what they're going through, and as you develop these relationships, and then know that they lost their older brother and they're going through that, it's tough. But uh, you know, again, we just keep going forward, and uh, it's why it's so important that they have some things I think to do you know, some activities because I hung around a little bit with the wrong crowd so I can relate to them. And, mm-hmm. and you go out and you try and look for excitement. Uncle Richard was fortunate he could find his excitement on the court and driving cars. And these kids sometimes go out looking for excitement, doing things that maybe they shouldn't. And we feel if they had the opportunity to do some positive things that, you know, hopefully there'll be less of these kids passing away from drugs and everything. So it's a waste of life. He was a wonderfully nice, always a polite kid. And I don't think he was a bad kid. You know, it was just a bad choice on one particular day. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's horrible. There's, there's lots of kids out, you know, lots of stuff like that going on in the streets. I think we need to all as a society be more sensitive to, because these poor kids, you know, I feel sorry for them. And that, that, again, gets back to our idea of just wanting to let them have fun. Mm-hmm. They need to have some fun, you know, so. And maybe that's something we can say is that for a lot of kids growing up, tennis is not an easy or attainable sport if you do not come from a family that can afford it. So the fact that you guys are helping yeah. kids who, you know, their parents probably don't belong to a country club, but you're there to provide them equipment and gear and shoes and teach them the fundamentals and keep their mind occupied and their physical body working and becoming athletes and teaching them how to fuel their body and teaching them the geometry. That really stuck with me because I'm horrible at math, but I love the sport of tennis. (laughs) But teaching them all these things that can they can latch on to something and find something good there and keep going forward. Yes. We have a lot of hope. So, uh, you know, we're really looking forward to going out and and reaching more kids. The main thing is it's the kids. Can we educate them? Can we help them? And can we support them? Definitely. Thank you guys for talking to me. We will definitely plan to chat again because this was so insightful and interesting. Hey, thanks for uh, doing this and uh, and everything. And uh, we look forward to to doing some more fun things. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing all of the stories and everything else. I appreciate it, you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you download your episodes. And be sure to visit our websites for all of the tennis deals at tenniswarehouse.com, tenniswarehouseeurope.com, and tennisonly.com.au. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, happy hitting. Happy hitting.